Hi, my name is Ron Cowie, and I'm your host today for another episode of Mead's Meanderings with Father Andrew Mead. In this meandering, Father Mead discusses the importance of St. Paul, his role in the early Christian church, and why his influence is still felt today. Father Mead lives in Narragansett, Rhode Island, where he attends St. Peter's by the Sea Episcopal Church. Ordained priest in 1971, he served in full-time parish ministry from 1973 until his retirement in 2014. This recording was made on location Father Mead's garden in August of 2020. Questions are always welcome and you can leave them in the comments. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you like what you're hearing, leave a five-star rating and a comment. Sharing your favorite episodes is always welcome too. If you'd like to support the efforts of St. Peter's, consider making a donation. Just go to stpetersbythesea.com and click on Donate. Your donation will help them care for the community and continue programming such as this. This podcast is created in partnership with St. Peter's by the Sea Episcopal Church and Oyster Farm Productions. There's a book about him by a scholar I really, really like, who was a great St. Paul scholar, among other things, biblical scholar, and he has a book, a collection of essays on St. Paul, great, big, thick, challenging book, but it's the title that has always grabbed me. The title is, Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Kaboom. And man, has, has he hit the nail on the head? Because you know, most of us don't come to Paul right away. I mean, I, I was, I didn't, I, I was, a, I was the Gospels, Jesus and the Gospels, and they... Uh... Why do you think that is? Well, it's the, in my case, I'll speak for myself. In my case, I went through a period first in high school, I didn't want to go to church and I resisted, but I obeyed my parents' house rules. Good old dad, he was great. If I have to go to church, you have to go to church. And then I fortified my unwillingness, not wanting not to go to church um, with skepticism in, in uh, college. And also there along came a righteous reason not to go to church. I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, I overheard my, my our, our church, we were, we were not even Episcopalians and we were in the liberal Protestant Disciples of Christ Church and our suburban church, Chicago suburban church was gonna have a pulpit and pew exchange with a downtown black congregation. Okay, and I overheard my mother say to my father how disappointed she was in some of the things that she had heard from some of the congregants about this pulpit and, and pew exchange. And meanwhile, I'm on another planet in the back, in the back seat, and I think, bingo, I have a righteous reason not to go to church. I don't have to go to church with those bigots. And it had nothing to do, you know, I was looking for a righteous reason not to go to church. I mean, it's just, if you want an excuse not to go to church, you can find one. Um, you can find, I mean, it doesn't have to be something as grand as that. It can be 
<laughs> Many years ago, uh, when I was a brand new curate at All Saints Church in Dorchester, and Boston had a wonderful new rector, he and I came together, and we were going around visiting parishioners who had um, drifted away. And the rector came back from a visit with a guy uh, on the south shore of Boston who said, ah, he said, I'm not coming to that church. He said, they've got too many hypocrites. And Father Purnell said, oh, he said, don't feel badly about that. There are plenty of seats for one more. Just join the rest of us. <laughs> he was great. He was a great pastor. Well, there I was in the back seat looking for my reason. Anyway, um, where was I going with this? Ah, very important point. You asked me, what was it about um, the Gospels and Jesus? Even when I was going through my skepticism phase, I could never, I could never let go of my attraction to the figure and the person of Jesus. It had hold of me. Um, whether it was his ministries to the wounded, the hurting, the outcasts, um, all sorts of people who were on the left out, and ultimately his confrontation with the religious authorities and his crucifixion. That figure of authority and self-giving love had hold of me. Even when I was manufacturing arguments against the existence of God, and I also remember when I, when I came back to faith, I remembered one step on the way was, well, Jesus certainly believed in God. Where do you get off? He, he bet his life on it. So that, uh, that's how I got back into the faith. Now, St. Paul is further down the line. He writes epistles, he's a, he's a gigantic, uh, figure in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the, of the early church after Pentecost. He's enormous in there. And if you put his epistles together with St. Luke's second book, the book of Acts, you have this figure of this um, overpowering, energetic, zealous, courageous, intellectual, well-born, convert from an enemy of, of Jesus and the church to not just its principal uh, uh, writing and speaking apostle, but he's the man who takes the gospel to the unwashed. What a paradox. This hardline, orthodox, Pharisee, Jewish scholar who is a persecutor, an official persecutor of the church. He cast his vote against St. Stephen and held the cloaks of the guys who were stoning him to death. And that set up his turnaround, his conversion, because the Lord then appeared to him on his way to Damascus to do more of this um, and said, Saul, that was his Jewish name, Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning me and the person, person of my disciples in my church. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. But that's all right. I'm going to make use of you as a great servant. And he turns that man around. Little did I know when I was a 
coming back into the church, how much and how profound that turnaround was. That scholar I mentioned earlier who wrote the book about Paul with the title, Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Bang. He really is. But in terms of, I mean, libraries of scholarship have been built on St. Paul's. And I am, I'm a parish priest and an amateur. I'm an interested amateur in St. Paul. And I have found in following Paul more and more, he is the apostle of the heart set free. And in some of my um, toughest moments, it's been things that Paul has written here or there to his congregations that have picked me up and brought me back to life. Like what? Like what? Um, when I'm feeling that I'm not up to the mark and that I'm a, well, to quote Paul on this subject, this is the text that, that boosts me. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I want to avoid is what I do. I perceive this principle, this law in me, that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand and I fall captive to it. And he's very honest about that. That's a long passage in his letter to the principal church, the, Rome, the, the Romans. It's his mature theological thinking. Uh, and he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes right away to the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ that Christ has lived the life when I haven't, that Christ has the grace when I seem graceless, that Christ is, is, is the forgiver when I need forgiving, that Christ is alive when I'm dead. And, it, and that's, that's just one of the passages of Paul. It's a famous one. And when it comes up in church, the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I do. Um, and he goes even further with that on, on how, how Jesus is the deliverer from that kind of a crisis. He's right, this is a different letter. He's writing to the Corinthians who are plagued with all sorts of splits and divisions. They've got people up here and they've got people down here. They've got, they've got people who are rich. They've got people who are poor. They're intellectuals and simple folks, spiritual people and just people who are trying to it, even the good things of this life flow into the Corinthians division. And Paul addresses that. He says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God takes the wisdom of this world and makes it foolishness, and in the cross of Christ, he shows his true wisdom. And then he goes on further to say about Jesus, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him, we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Christ goes to, to a death and a cross and a condemnation for a sinner which he, of which he was innocent. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. And I thought, wow, that, and that's just, a, that's, just a, that's just a couple of sentences in a letter where he's dealing with these problems in Corinth. He does that all the time. He does that all the time. Uh, to the uh, Ephesians and the Colossians, they're kind of in, uh, they're in Western Turkey. They call, they call it Asia Minor. They're in Western Turkey. And, and 
Ephesus was a big church. Colossae was a small church, but they were given to all sorts of um, uh, various pagan philosophies there. And, and Paul cuts right across that and says, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. In him is all the wisdom that there is. In Christ, who is the word by which all things were made, um, in him, uh, everything holds together. And that's, so when he, when, he, when he addresses these problems, all of a sudden his head goes through the ceiling, his feet go through the floor, and this giant of, of wisdom and consolation appears. He's, he's amazing. We have a, a parishioner who suggested that I speak about St. Paul, and I did say, I'll think about it. Thanks for the idea, because it goes all over the place with St. Paul. I mean, I, 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 the, the notes I wrote down about Paul, Paul's conversion, which is told three times in Acts, Paul's meeting with the apostles, who were the original apostles who were scared to death of him because they knew he was a, a, a persecutor. He squares his message with theirs. His travels, um, it appears he got all the way to Spain before he died. Um, but he had three principal missionary journeys uh, that got him to Asia Minor and Greece. And then he revisited those churches a couple of times. Um, his letters both to congregations and to individuals. And you know, Paul gets people who, who haven't really appreciated and read Paul just skim the surface. It's like uh, it's like bad headlines. They, they get this piece or that piece or another piece and they're down on Paul because of slavery or women's rights or sex or, or you name it. Now, first of all, we're talking about a first century Orthodox Jew who becomes a Christian in a society where one third of the people were slaves in ancient Rome. And it was a different kind of slavery in many ways from what uh, American chattel slavery was uh, people sold themselves into slavery if they were in debt in Rome. It was a way you still retained your Roman board. But nevertheless, the issue, the is issue is, is one of human bondage. And Paul accepts that fact, and yet he undermines slavery over and over again. He does it to a, in a, to a couple of letters to churches, and he does it to a personal letter to a Christian who is a slave owner, who, who, whose runaway slave is with Paul. That's the letter to Philemon. And Paul writes to him, he says, um, Dear Philemon, um, Onesimus is here with me. He has served me very well. Uh, I want you to do me a favor and, and, and free him and let him be free. He did run away, but I want you to, if, if there's anything that he owes you, you can write that up to my debt. Um, and, and he says, besides that, he's a freed man of the Lord and you're a, a slave of the Lord. I mean, that's the kind of thing he would do. Or to the Galatians, uh, he says, uh, that's, those are the churches that was kind of like a diocese in central Turkey that, that Paul started in his first missionary journey. He says to them, there is no Jew or Greek there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. 
There's no civilized or barbarian, for all are one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that, that is a drastic statement. And it, it really says everything there is to say about human divisions. Now, in, in Paul's local letters, he, sa he does say one thing to one church and another thing that appears contradictory to another church because the local pastoral situation is different. Um, on the one hand, he talks about a certain Phoebe as though she's a fellow apostle. On the other hand, he says, well, actually, I don't, I don't allow the women to preach in church. Now, what about that? That's, uh, those, are different, those are different situations. And I think it gives Paul a bad rap. On, on sex, famously, he's supposed to be, people are down on him. But he's speaking about marriage and husbands and wives and he says, um, this is a long passage about how husbands and wives live together. Um, he says, the husband's, the, the wife's body is not her own, but it belongs to her husband. And you think he's gonna stop there, but he doesn't. He says, and the husband's body is not his own. It belongs to his wife, for they are one flesh. So it's Paul who, who sees right, we're, we're talking about 40 or 50 AD, and he sees right to the heart of things. Um, so I think when the church reads these passages, you have, to, you have to judge between local situations and fixed principles that he has, that he's expounding. And these aren't unique to Paul, although Paul, I think, takes our breath away more with his depth and breadth in these doctrines, but he is in complete harmony and agreement with First and Second Peter, with the four Gospels, and with the letters and Gospel of John. So he really is uh, the apostle of the heart set free. Uh, it seems like he's kind of um, speaking of a theology or, or, you know, that kind of brings everything together. And, and in a way, it's like, yeah, you're going to do bad you're still on the team. You're still on the team. And he's very forgiving. I mean, he deals with some really scandals in the church. And he says, look, uh, as long as this is going on, um, he needs not to be <laughs> fellowshipping with you. This is a grave scandal, but maybe that will bring him around to, um, and uh, maybe he will be brought around to a better mind using the church discipline. I mean, Paul is... He's in the redemption business. Um, an interesting development in Paul's career was his, his famous speech in Athens. He went to the Mars Hill to the Areopagus and gave a famous speech. There were Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And he used some of their, it's, this is a great story in Acts, he used some of their texts to persuade them um, that the God they talked about but didn't know was actually the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't do very well in terms of attracting apostle, uh, uh, followers and disciples in Athens. And it looks to me like he then goes on further south. You know, there's the Peloponnesian, southern Greece there. And he goes on to Corinth where he says, Corinth was a rich city. He said, I, I eschewed all this fancy philosophy and wisdom because I was determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified, the kind of unvarnished gospel. And he did much better at Corinth. 
although he had a lot of disciplinary troubles. Yeah. Corinth sounds like the eastern seaboard of the Episcopal Church to me. <laughs> it's all over the place. Very interesting congregation. Required a lot of attention, love and attention. But he, uh, he, uh, he wasted a lot of blood, not wasted, he gave a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And wasted, uh, well, didn't waste, at the time in Athens, Athens, a church did develop in Athens later. Um, Paul and Dionysius are regarded as the founders of that, but he, he's, he's amazing. Now, in terms of living life in the University of Hard Knocks or abounding, my favorite letter by Paul is the letter to the Philippians. And he's very happy with the Philippian church. I've been to Philippi. You can, you can go there. It's in Macedonian part of Greece. There's Thessalonica, which is one of the biggest cities in Greece now. Then you can go off to Berea, where there was a little congregation, and Philippi. You can see where he was put in jail there. There's the forum and everything else. But he's in jail. We're not exactly sure where it could be Rome, but he's, he's in jail and he's writing to the Philippians. He's very happy with them. And he writes to them and he says, you know, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've learned how to be poor. I've learned how to abound. In whatever state I am, I have learned the secret of being cont content with Christ. And it's, it's, it's a very, very beautiful passage. And it's the one that says, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, let it keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, over and over again, these rich phrases come out of these tough spots. Um, Philippians is also the letter that we hear um, in Holy Week, especially on Palm Sunday, where he's, he's talking about self-forgetfulness, humility. And this is another one of those situations where all of a sudden his shoulders go through the ceiling and his feet go through the floor, and here's this giant of profoundness in Christ, and he says, have this, talking about humility, he says, have this mind among yourselves and in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, there's the figure of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he went even further and suffered death on the cross. There's the shape of the life that he's commending for himself and for all the rest of us. Powerful stuff. I, uh, oh, there's so much in, in, in Paul. It's, we, we don't know what Paul looked like, although there is a description that some scholars are inclined to credit. It's from a book called the it's not in the Bible, but it's called the, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, who was his secretary at one point. And they're waiting for Paul to come to the town, and the leaders of the church are waiting for him, and they describe him as not of impressive physical appearance, thin hair on the top, a single eyebrow, a nose slightly hooked, um, uh, of good physical condition. I don't doubt that, given all the journeys he did and having the face that looked like an angel. Must have been beaming, glad to see them. Uh, we, we do know that Paul was a born Roman citizen. That's a big deal. 
people paid a lot of money to be Roman citizens. He was a born Roman citizen. He was trained by the rabbi, famous rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, he was a, a well-born uh, Jewish intellectual from Tarsus, which was a sophisticated city, or as Paul says, no mean city. Um, and there were often times in his, um, in his ministry where that, that really paid off. He was once beaten without a hearing by the magistrates. And Paul said to them, is it your custom to beat a Roman citizen without a hearing? And the guy says, you're a Roman citizen? He said, yes, I am. He said, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. Ah, says Paul, but I was freeborn. It's a great, it's a great passage. I was freeborn. Uh, that happens more, that kind of thing happens more than once. So he, I think that the conversion of St. Paul after the martyrdom of St. Stephen, somewhere in there, is the most important event in church history after Pentecost. It, it's just overwhelmingly important. Yeah. The apostle of the heart set free. Uh, m most scholars believe that Paul did get uh, not only got to Rome, but as he said in his letters, and there are other testimonies, he did get to Spain briefly. But this all was in the time of Emperor Nero, who blamed a lot of Rome's problems on the early Christian movement. And Paul was very likely, uh, as was Peter, martyred under Nero around somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. Peter, as the tradition, well, base tradition, was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. He's a Roman citizen. So they made it quick. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, I, I was list. I mean, I haven't, I haven't touched, I mean, Paul and there were some people in Corinth who didn't believe in the resurrection. That resulted in the 15th chapter of, of 1 Corinthians, which tells the history of the appearances of Christ and the resurrection, and then unfolds the mystery of the resurrection of all of us. We wouldn't have that without trouble in Corinth. Um, we've talked about reconciliation of sinners, the deity of Christ, Christ's self-emptying. What Paul uh, explains and elucidates baptism and the Eucharist, the bread which we break is a communion in the body of Christ. When we do this, we show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Uh, St. Paul is the one who speaks of the body of Christ, having all sorts of members with different gifts, with a corporate life. He also talks about the individual member. He says uh, concerning himself, uh, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for me and died for me. So it's both intensely individual and richly corporate. And he talks about life after baptism and life in Christ as walking by the Spirit. I do want to do some meanderings on how we are to, how we are to regard the Ten Commandments. And, but, and that's that's another sermon for another day, another meandering for another, for another time. Well, it seems like, I mean, what you're saying, it, Paul kind of 
took, I mean, especially 50 AD, kind of took something <laughs> that it took it a fairly simple story and he made it transcendent. He did. And it traveled well. It traveled well. I don't know. I mean, there have been many, many great theologians since, but the greatest of them, from St. Augustine of Hippo to Thomas Aquinas to Martin Luther to Soren Kierkegaard to Car right up to the 20th century and, and on, none of them really rise above Paul. They, they, they take what Paul has given and, and not bring it up to date, but they, 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 they clothe it in, in language that modern people, that contemporary people can understand. Um, and as you said, he, that was well said, he takes a simple story of the of the, the, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord for our salvation, and he makes it, it travels well. That's a, that's, that's a good phrase. And I, I would say not only does it travel well, but it is, it's, to rhyme it, it's all in Paul, and it travels well. Do you think we'd be here if it wasn't for him? I mean, in terms of, like, would we be having this conversation as an epistle, to, you know, in anything? Do you think the Christian church would have survived if he wasn't on the game. Well, God 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 can do anything, but we would certainly be we would certainly be different. Uh, the, it's the what if question, but uh, I, I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, yeah. He um, he's the apostle beloved of Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics and Protestants. That's pretty high commendation. They all claim him. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure he would find things in each tradition that probably needed a little shaping up. Uh, the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer is just so... So I had a, a, a priest one time who said to me, he said, isn't it amazing how uh, the Anglican, the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer is so Pauline and Johannine. In other words, much of our prayers and liturgy comes from Saint, from Jesus through Paul and John. And that's really true. If you look at those prayers, one after another are from Paul and John, shaped by them. They're, they're at the foundation. And you know, how, how do they, I was just say, how, do you, how does Paul's story and interpretation or whatever, how can that, uh, you know, when, when people, I just think, how do you, like, how does Paul, Paul really did a lot to help grow the church. I think oh. he still is. What is the message of Paul that can kind of, that plays well in all these denominations? Well, I'll, let me tell you something about that. I've discovered in my own ministry, if somebody comes up to me and says, you know, that was really, um, that message really grabbed me. That was really, that was really quite a thing there. It's very often something that I have retailed from St. Paul. What is it about that? Like why is he so good at it? He, he's a guy who wanted to be very, very good and knew his flaws and weaknesses. I haven't talked about this. You know, Paul had mystical experiences on the one hand. He actually talks about himself in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ who went up to the third heaven or the ninth heaven, whether in the body or not, I'm not sure. Of that man, he said, uh, I could boast, he said, but then he goes right on to say, 
that God gave him a thorn, the famous thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but it brought him down to earth. And he said, three times I asked the Lord to get rid of this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, it was a habitual sin, a weakness or something that he just couldn't shake off. Uh, he said, God gave it to me so to keep me from being too elated, too full of myself. And he said, three times I asked God to take this away, and he, he, the answer came, my grace is sufficient for you. I, I don't know about you, but I find that very humanizing. That's where, that's, that's, that's where I live. Thorns in the flesh, good intentions not matured, um, holding on to Jesus for dear life, you know, for forgiveness and grace. That, that's where I live. And that's the message of St. Paul. Thank God. I mean, he even took Peter to task. This, the, the, early cri the, the big crisis in the early church was, okay, all these non-Jews are becoming followers of Jesus. Now the Christian church began as a Jewish movement saying that Jesus was the Messiah. But now we're saying that he's, through Paul and others, he's the king and God of the Gentiles. So what do we do about these kind of barbarian pagans who are coming in? Do they have to become, do they have to get up to speed by becoming Jews first and then fulfilled Jews? And you would have thought, wouldn't you, at least I would have, that a hardline Pharisee like Paul would have said, yeah, they, they, absolutely not. He, he was the one who stood down. They were called the Judaizers. He stood them down. He said, no, and then the compromise was reached. Well, they, they, have, they should abstain from immorality and from blood and things strangled, but basically baptism and faith in Christ and repentance is what is needed. And, and that was the compromise. And Paul said, Jesus is sufficient. I mean, that was amazing for him to be able to say that. And you know, he also provoked ferocious opposition. I mean, the opposition that you see in Acts and in his epistles from his fellow Jews, as well as from within the church and pagans, it, it, it's, uh, it's huge. And maybe that was because he was so good at what he did and it drove people to a frenzy. Well, he sounds like a great unifier, you know, and, and it is our nature to kind of divide. That's right. Well, it's all in Paul. Paul is his Roman name. Saul was his Jewish name. I, I think I said in an earlier meanderings, I, I, I think that Paul, his conversion, his life's work and everything else from top to bottom shows the, um, the chickens are laughing, shows the divine sense of humor. What is the divine sense of humor? How does that show up in your life? How does it show up in my life? Well, like Paul, I often find that the things I have invested a great deal of energy, time, and sweat in that's, are beside the point. And here in front of me is a situation of, of grace which requires open ears, a sympathetic heart, 
and a little, a little bit of Christian imagination to deal with. And all this stuff, this uh, book knowledge and everything else, all of this, I'm not putting down intellectual effort and study, but a lot of times, when I look back on my ecclesiastical career, I think of the things that I spent so much time and worry and effort on and well, it takes me back to when I first, did I rediscover Christ or did he reintroduce himself to me? I think it's the latter. It's, it's, it's more like, um, excuse me, Andrew, uh, may I reintroduce myself to you? You remember me from when you were a kid? Um, I don't remember much beyond uh, the overwhelming joy and the sense of good news of that discovery of the living Jesus. And you know, when Paul is done with all of his letters and everything else, that's what he comes to as well. He, sa he, he says, uh, what is it? Um, I, I put a, there, there is no boast except the cross of Christ who gave himself for me and for you and for all of the rest of us. And he is our life and our resurrection. And uh, the sense of humor, the divine sense of humor in that is all of the stuff that we think is so important, we get very full of ourselves. Climb down off that horse. God often um, punctures our fullness of ourselves and fills us with something else, his love and grace. I mean, I find that over and over again. God allowed Paul to have a thorn in the flesh so he didn't even become too spiritually elated. You know, spirituality can be a, a, yet another source of arrogance. You meet that a lot in the church. I'm very spiritual. Hmm. Okay. Right. Careful how you use those phrases. The devil is spiritual too. Yeah. Love is the answer. Um, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who didn't grasp his equality with God, but emptied himself. That's the kind of, that's the kind of love. In the Greek language, there were three. There were three big words for love, and one of them was hardly used by the ancient Greeks. Eros, which they used a lot, which is passion, romantic love. Philia, which is friendship, soul kinship. Third one, they don't use very much, but it's all over the New Testament, especially in Paul. Agape, which is self-giving love, self-sacrificing love. Let the circumstances happen as they may. The pattern of the cross. Even when the lover, Christ, finds himself in a situation of God-forsakenness. My, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually gone that far into our wilderness. That, to me, is the, the, most, it, the, the weakest and the most powerful moment of, of Christ's incarnation. I mean, it upsets people. How could the Son of God say God has forsaken him? Well, it must have sucked. <laughs>
<laughs> it was, it's unimaginable. I mean, it's not just the physical suffering, which is horrible enough, which is, I can't even get my mind around what a crucifixion must have been like. And the Romans did it all the time, line the streets with them sometimes. Um, but the relationship to God, which was, which, which was his, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is, ex if you will, God is experiencing God forsakenness. He, he's gone that far into the valley of the shadow. And then as Peter says on the day of Pentecost, and it was impossible for death to hold on to him. That's, he took it right into the lion's mouth. He gave the devil what he wanted, and it was too much for the devil to handle. That's one way of putting it. The early, the early church writers used that image a lot. That, I, didn't, I didn't make that up. That, why is Paul so important today? Why, why should we really, how can we view the, le the world as we are in it today through the lens of Paul? What does that look like for someone who is not an amateur Pauline? Right, right. Well, I think Paul would look at our world today and see its turmoil and troubles. Um, it's interesting, he, he upheld the state, the empire, as the thing that stood between um, a fallen, sinful world and total anarchy and chaos. And he, he did say to the Romans, he said, the emperor, remember which emperor he's talking about, Nero does not bear the sword in vain. And that sword was eventually to behead Paul. Um, so he had no... Uh, he had no um, rose-colored glasses looking at the world. I think that he would say that all the institutions of this life are, are, they are gifts and they need to be used for what they can be. But he would say what's really important, um, whether circumstances are good or bad, whether, whether the state looks like... Um, looks like it's doing a pretty good job just now, or whether it looks like some kind of apocalyptic monster, which it, it is portrayed both ways in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, it becomes a monster, Rome. And um, he, no matter how it looks, um, he would say, what is really important is your time and, and my time. Our time is short, eternity is long. Um, hold on to Christ, walk by the Spirit, do what you can while you can, and have hope in Christ and realize that death is the, is the gate to everlasting life. That's what he would say. Don't be distracted and terrified by the turmoils of the world, and they are frightening to people. Um, the injustices, the disorders. I think that's what Paul would say. I think that's what Paul would say. He, he, um, he would say, if you're, a, if you're a ruler, do justice. Do the best you can. Um, remember that the ultimate justice is God's, and so our justice is very proximate. Very proximate. And somewhere, um, is, it, is it Paul? 
the form of this world is passing away. Um, or as a priest friend of mine, the same fellow I spoke about earlier, Father Purnell said, yes, he said, concerns about worldly arrangements are like arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It may be important for the next 15 minutes who sits where, but the, the world is pretty shaky. I mean, in, a, in America, I mean, Christians are divided. Uh, the American people are divided. But I think, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a dynamic between order and justice. And order is not right if there isn't justice. How can there be peace without justice? And yet justice needs order to be implemented. We're struggling with this now in our politics. Paul would not say that that's not important. He would say that's not ultimate. Um, if that's your vocation, is to do justice, then do justice. If it's your vo vocation to keep order, then, then do so. But he would be keenly aware that behind all human endeavor, justice and order is the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's how I would wrap it up. That's how we'll wrap it up. You have been listening to another episode of Mead's Meanderings, an original production of Father Andrew Mead, St. Peter's by the Sea Episcopal Church in Narragansett, Rhode Island, and Oyster Farm Productions. If you never want to miss an episode, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you think someone you know would enjoy this podcast, please feel free to share it with them. Also, we welcome your questions and comments. If we can do something better, let us know. Thank you for your time and your attention. And until we meet again, may God bless you.